Friday. Well, first of all, how blessed are we to have a worship team that can roll with the punches like that and keep the focus on Jesus. Thank you so much, guys, for uh, bearing with us, but gosh, even in the midst of power going out, come what may, the church continues to worship. The church continues to be the church, even if we things happen that we're not quite prepared for. We respond in God's love. I mean, have you ever been put in charge of something that you didn't feel prepared for? Was there ever a thing that you recognized like as important? You said like this is important and you knew that somebody needed to do it. And then in an unexpected moment, a leader kind of locked eyes on you and asked you to be the one. My guess is that this will resonate with many of you who have been around New Hope for any longer than a month or two, because it's one of my favorite things to do. I think that one of the key components of my job is giving ministry away to people who aren't necessarily equipped for it. And I didn't just make that up, I actually got that from the Bible. Paul says in Ephesians that God gave leaders to the church, apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. Mary Pauline often likes to say, God doesn't call, just call the equipped, he equips the called. So I see my job as uh, to equip others for doing the ministry, and one of the key ways that I equip others for doing the ministry is by asking them to do things that they're not necessarily comfortable yet doing, even if they feel like they're not quite equipped. So some of you are thinking, yeah, he does that all the time, and I hate it. We hate being outside of our comfort zone, but, but oh my goodness, can God do some amazing things when we're there. I've seen that on, I, the reason I keep doing it is because every time I do it, God just shows up in incredible ways, far bigger ways than I even, even anticipated. So we're in this series called Living Hope, which is a series that suggests that this radical, foolish thing, it suggests a radical and foolish thing that you and I are the evidence of the resurrection. Jesus was raised from the dead, and before he ascended into heaven, he gave a mission, the great commission to his disciples, who then made disciples, who then made disciples, and on and on and on until the creation of New Hope Community Church and our meeting this morning. To look through the pages of history, you'd be astonished to see what God did with unlikely characters. And you'd also see some of the darkest moments of history and that they happened with actually some rather likely characters, the kind of people you might expect to be in leadership who wielded power instead of influence. I heard someone say just this week that power equals do it or else, but influence equals do it because it's me who's asking. Influence, it turns out, is far greater than power. Whereas power is about control and manipulation and fear, influence is about trust and sacrifice and the greater good. There is nowhere we see this laid out for us in a 
in a better way than with Jesus himself. Mark 10.45 said, For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. So when God taps an unlikely character for an important job, it allows that person the opportunity to trust in their father's strength rather than their own. It allows that person to trust that their failures are part of God's sovereign plan and that their successes are all to his glory. Jesus could have presented himself to Caesar, the likely character of the day to have power over that world at that time, but instead he chose this unlikely group of fishermen and tax collectors and zealots to carry this mission to a broken world. That's how Jesus chose sacrificial influence rather than controlling power. He does this through all of his disciples. And for three of them in particular, he sort of develops a special relationship. There's this one guy, though, who kind of seems to be Mm, special, set apart. Uh, this, this one guy in the New Testament who repeatedly, uh, the New Testament repeatedly tells us is an unlikely character who seems to represent um, the Israel of the past and also the church of the future. On Easter, we talked about how the cross was a pivotal moment of the created order. In the fullness of time, God sent forth His Son to remove the chains of our sinful imprisonment and then set us free for the new creation life that He had in store for us. In a similar way, I believe that this guy is a pivotal character in this story. In a sense, he represents the Israel of the past Deep within his DNA, his Hebrew DNA, were ancestors who were called out by God, blessed to be a blessing. And then here he was in this present situation, this guy who was just a lowly Galilee fisherman. And then Jesus walks up to this guy, Simon, and his brother Andrew, who is with him, and says to them, follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. Simon follows him and He begins to learn from him. Along with the other, Simon frequently misses the point of many things that Jesus does. He kind of stumbles his way into understanding that it is the least who are the greatest in the kingdom. Last week we looked at Thomas, and and I said I wanted us to give Thomas a break because he was only asking for the evidence that you and I probably would have asked for. I think we also need to give this guy Simon a break. Because I'm not sure that I would have fared much better if I were in his shoes. Have a look at Matthew 14, 22. Uh, Matthew 14, starting in verse 22. On the day, uh, one day the disciples who were, uh, were on a boat without Jesus in a terrible storm. And they battled this storm all night long. And just before daylight, they kind of see something out on the water. Looks like it's a man who was walking on water. And they were already scared out of their wits, but now they think they're seeing a ghost. And they hear a voice, and it's Jesus saying, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And you got to give it to this guy, Simon, who was the only one to speak up and say, Lord, if it is you, command me to come out onto the water with you. And Jesus said, Come. And Simon did as he was told. 
He gets out of the boat and he realizes that he too was now walking on water. And he began to walk towards Jesus, which is always a good direction to be going. But at just that moment, the wind picked up and Simon remembered his fear. And he began to sink and he began to cry out for help. And the story tells us that immediately, 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 Jesus reached out his hand and he took hold of Simon and he said, oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? This wasn't the first time that Peter had to learn the lesson that to do the thing that Jesus called him to do, it took trust in the one with the authority to do it. Turn a few pages to the right to Matthew 16, starting in verse 13. Sometime later, rumors had been spreading throughout the land of, about this guy, Jesus, about who this guy really was. And one day, they were in the region of Caesarea Philippi, which was a region that was known for its worship of Roman gods, specifically to Caesar himself. In fact, Caesar Augustus, who was emperor when Jesus was born, was the adopted son of Julius Caesar, who was deified after his death, so Augustus would be known after his death as the Son of God. Jesus asked, who do people say the Son of Man is? Son of Man is a, a, a phrase that Jesus used to refer to himself. We don't have time to turn there, but you can learn more about that phrase in Daniel 7 if you get a chance. Well, the disciples answered, some say John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets, uh, and then, you know, they kind of have this banter back and forth to e- with each other, and, and Jesus just stops them and says, whoa, 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 wait, who do you say I am? And I picture that moment just like stopping the, gro- the group like dead in its tracks, and they were at a loss for words, and even if, even if they had some idea of who this Jesus was after they had followed him for a while, it just seems like they were stunned in that moment to just say anything. Until this guy, Simon, who in a moment of uncharacteristic clarity, breaks the silence. Maybe he said this in a profound, big way. Maybe he said it in kind of a quiet whisper. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus looks at him and said, Blessed are you, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. And I tell you, your name is Peter. And on this rock, Peter means rock or rocky, on this rock, I'm going to build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And then Peter, the name Peter, Petra, means rock or, or rocky. This is what Jesus calls Simon after his encounter. People have done all sorts of things with this verse. Catholic tradition sees it as proof that Simon Peter was, was the first um, in the apostolic line of popes, and others have, have Peter uh, simply as the first leader of the church who would give ministry away to the disciples and, and spread the gospel around the world. And others think that it, was Pete, uh, th- that it wasn't Peter that Jesus was naming as the rock, but instead Peter's confession that Jesus was the son of the living God. And I- I'm not here this morning to settle that argument. But I do think it's rather hard for us to ignore, to ignore the fact that Peter plays a unique 
and vital role in the Gospels and in the life of the early church. At that moment, Peter must have felt like he was back on the water again. But he continues to be this unlikely character, even after this Caesarea Philippi confession. The very next verse after that episode, uh, Matthew 16, starting in verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed on the third day and be raised. And Peter, after he was just handed the keys of the kingdom, he kind of like, this must have been hilarious. He, he kind of like looks at the other disciples and he's kind of like, I got this guy. Jesus. The text says he takes Jesus aside. Can you imagine taking Jesus aside? He begins to rebuke him. Far be it from you, Lord. Peter says, this shall not happen to you. I mean, there's Peter sinking in the water because he doesn't trust that this has always been Jesus' story, not his. And Jesus looks at Peter and says, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. You are not setting your mind on things of God, but on the things of man. He goes on to say, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and then follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, there he will find it. Jesus was then had always been and continues to this day laser-focused on this gospel mission to reunify heaven and earth. He calls his followers, especially those who would be leaders, to do the same. That path, especially for leaders, is a life of sacrifice and service, a life of taking up a cross, taking up your cross and living a life of denial, um, a denial of self, and obedience to God's agenda, not yours. If that pill is difficult for you and I to swallow, imagine what it must have felt like for Peter. In that moment for Jesus, right after he had, he had, he had called you blessed, right after he had given you the keys uh, to, to, to heaven, keys to the kingdom, Tell him that the gates of hell wouldn't prevail against it. And in the next breath, Satan, you're a hindrance to me. But the other thing about Jesus' love is that he loves to turn our stumbles into dance. For Peter, he was able to experience this lesson from the master one last time before his earthly ministry came to a close. Have a look at Matthew 26 beginning in verse 30. On the night before the crucifixion, just after the institution of the Lord's Supper, Jesus and his disciples went out to the Mount of Olives. Jesus had something very serious to tell them. He says, "Uh, you all will fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will scatter. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter again just doesn't get it. And again, Jesus calls him out on it. Peter, Jesus says, truly, I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows, you're going to deny me three times. 
And then Peter does the thing that so many of us do when we are called out. He doubles down on his words rather than listens to what Jesus is saying. He uses his mouth rather than his ears. And Peter says, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. All the disciples, they go around and they say likewise. And it isn't long before Jesus is betrayed by Judas Iscariot and arrested by the chief priests and the elders. And while Jesus was with them, Peter was, uh, while Jesus was with the chief priests and the elders, Peter was then sitting, he was sitting outside in the courtyard. This is chapter 26, starting in verse 69. Again, you have to give it to Peter that he was there in the first place. This would have been a very hostile environment to anyone who was a known follower of Jesus. But he's approached by this young girl. We might say like a, like a 12-year-old girl, a maidservant, who was probably you know, 11 or 12 years old, maybe been in charge of a door or something. She points out that, that Peter was a part of Jesus' group. But Peter says, I, I, I don't know what you mean. He walks away from her, and then he's approached by another servant girl who again recognizes that Peter was with Jesus. And Matthew tells us that this time, Peter denied it with an oath. The kind of oath that Jesus warned against. In our language, we might say that Peter responded to this girl, I swear to God, I don't know him. But still, other bystanders notice Peter's Galilean accent, and they say, certainly you too are with one of them. Your accent betrays you. Then he takes the denial, he takes it up a notch. He again just doubles down. He lays down a curse on himself if he is lying. By now, it doesn't even matter that everyone knows he's lying. He is so caught up in this lie that he just keeps doubling down. And basically he says, may God strike me down if I'm lying. I do not know the man. And then that moment cock-a-doodle-doo. I'm sure that many of us can relate to Peter's experience, at least a little bit. He attempts to use sin to cover up sin. He attempts to use lies to cover up lies. He chooses to save his own skin rather than to stand his ground with his friend. And after Peter realized what he had done, Matthew tells us that he went off and he wept bitterly. I mean, clearly clearly the crowd wasn't buying his story, but as far as we can tell, they weren't after blood, at least not Peter's. Peter's fear overtook him, and the lies of denial consumed him, even in the moment when it didn't really necessarily benefit him. Again, we who read this story should be careful to neither take it too lightly or to judge and curse Peter ourselves. Peter had said that, uh, Jesus had said that anyone, Peter, the disciples, you, me, anyone who claims to be one of his followers must deny himself or herself and follow him. Instead, it's now Peter who is denying Jesus. I mean, just take a moment. Search your conscience. When have we done the same? When have you chosen to live into your fear rather than the courage that comes from God? 
I think if I'm honest, there have been times when God gave me the opportunity to bear witness to my relationship with Christ, and instead, I chose to be comfortable. Maybe I didn't say it outright. I don't know the man. But I may have said it with my actions. I may have said it with other words, other words of hate and division and gossip and slander. I may have invoked a curse by using language that clearly used God's name in vain and and treated it like dirt. And if I'm really honest, I probably do this most when I'm alone. It's one thing to deny Christ to others. How often do we deny Christ to ourselves? That's sin. And before we go any further, it's vital for us to proclaim that Jesus' next move in the story was to go right directly for sin as he paid the price and died for your sins and mine so that we can live into his new reaction, his resurrection life, into his new creation. And it is in light of the truth of that story that we're able to see a piece of the redemption of Peter's story. Just as That is a piece of the redemption story overall. Turn to the book of John in chapter 21. John 21, starting in verse 15. The author tells us of a moment after the resurrection where Jesus had breakfast with his disciples. At that moment, if you notice, uh, was still not one of Peter's best moments, but it's a mirror of Peter's denial. Jesus looks at him and says, Simon, son of John, do you agape me more than these? Meaning, probably meaning, do you love me more than the other disciples, the other people that are are, are part of this crowd? Do you love me? Do you agape me? Do you unconditionally love me? Peter's answer, though, was, yes, Lord. You know that I phylos you. Meaning, yes, Lord, I'm your friend. And Jesus responds by saying, feed my lambs. Again, though, Jesus asks him, Simon, son of John, do you agape me? Do you love me? But Peter again responds, yes, Lord, you know that I'm your friend. And then Jesus a third time, okay, Peter, if that's where you are, Am I your friend? Or are you going to continue to deny me? Peter, still not getting it, was grieved because Jesus had asked him three times if he had loved him, but he responds, Lord, you know everything. You know that I'm your friend. See, I I think that one of the most critical moments in the reality of Peter's life and his commissioning was that he wasn't ready. But Jesus was. Peter didn't have the credentials, but Jesus did. The credentials of the cross and the empty tomb. It's a vital significance for us to see that this moment, which could have been seen as a moment of forgiveness on the part of Jesus in regards to Peter's denial, although that's not spelled out as such, it's certainly a moment of commissioning. 
This is as true of the church today as it was of Peter then. Jesus, who sees our faults and our failings far better than we ever could, still breathes life into us for His purpose. You were not saved from sin in order that you could merely escape some eternal hellfire. You were called away from a path of darkness onto a path of life for the sake of the world that God loves so much. In that sense, this church, which Peter represents, even in the face of all that its failure, of all its failure, is still today called to feed lambs. It's still called today to shepherd sheep. We're called to give our past to Jesus as He alone transforms it for His redemptive purposes. And then we can do things that only He, only we can imagine. And that's why we are called to be a community defined by discipleship, defined by encouragement, defined by forgiveness and grace towards each other and to those outside our doors. Yesterday, the church world was, was rocked by some uh, just heartbreaking news. Of um, Some of you might be familiar with the author Rachel Held Evans, who, um, you know, say what you will for um, the, the, the bulk of her work, I mean, it, it, as with any uh, writer, any Christian writer, leaves it open for uh, wrestling, you know, the, the, the books and the, and the words that she had, um, had, had kind of dominated her work. And um, I had the opportunity to read her book, Searching for Sunday, a few years ago. Uh, and the primary reason why I wanted to read it is because she's an 81 99er, uh, born in 81, graduated in 99. So I try to read as many of those as, as possible. But yesterday she, she passed away. She's my age, just a few months older than me. And she passed away from an allergic reaction to um, some medication after she got the flu. And um, many in the church world on social media have been just uh, lamenting this loss. And I found this, this quote that I thought would be a good place for us to end. She says, If I've learned anything on this journey, both in writing this book and clumsily living its content, it's that Sunday morning sneaks up on us like dawn, like resurrection, like the sun that rises a ribbon at a time. We expect a trumpet and a triumphal entry, but as always, God surprises us by showing up in ordinary things, in bread and wine and water and words and sickness and healing and death, in a manger of hay, in a mother's womb, in an empty tomb. Church isn't something, isn't, isn't some community you join or a place you arrive. Church is what happens when someone taps you on the shoulder and whispers in your ear, pay attention. This is holy ground. God is here. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would remind us that this is holy ground. Not because someone decided to build a church on this property. To build a building. But because you are here. Because your Holy Spirit dwells in the midst of us. It works through us. As we gather here and we bring our failings and we bring our garbage through those doors and we bring ourselves, our bare selves, as we are, Father, 
you redeem us, you transform us. You ask for the confession of our sins and we give them to you. And then you turn forgiveness into commissioning. And you don't just forgive our sins so that we're good. You make forgiveness a part of our identity and then you send us out into the world to preach the message of forgiveness to a world that is desperate for it. Father, thank you so much for this incredible plan of yours, this brilliant plan of yours. And just continue to remind us, us who know that I am not worthy, I don't have the credentials, I don't have the talent for this. I don't have the skill for this. For you to remind me, no, no, I know you don't. But through me, you will. Through me, I'm going to do such incredible things through you and your friends. Because I love you. And I'm drawing you home to myself. In the most holy name of Jesus Christ, I ask all these things. Amen.